Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, great to see your smiling faces. You all look good even after Easter. So uh, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus, and I uh, hope you feel uh, welcome here, and we're delighted to uh, have you here. It's been quite a March madness, hasn't it? Um, I am a sports fan. I used to wrestle many, many years ago. Uh, I don't play basketball with the hoop, but I love basketball. And, uh, you know, there have been ups and downs in March Madness, right? We're almost there. Uh, disappointments, of course, with uh, KU losing. Uh, but maybe next year, right? We all have the Royals now, right? So, but March Madness is, a, is an amazing time. And um, I love watching the tournament. I think most of you do. Uh, some of you are into bracketology and all that. But I'm repeatedly struck by how the personality of the team uh, so often reflects the personality of the coach, have you noticed? Or coaches. Uh, not only in how they play, but in fact, who coaches actually recruit in the first place. Tells you a lot about the coach, doesn't it? And I think that's true whether it is in the arena of sports or politics or business. Who a leader attracts speaks volumes about who that leader is. It's often said that you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of leader they follow. But I want to suggest to you that it is also true that you can tell a lot about a leader by the kind of people who follow them. Now, whether at this point in your life you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or you are checking that out or wherever you are in your Christian journey or faith journey, I think there's a common ground as we look at the person of Jesus that Jesus is viewed throughout history and across faith traditions as perhaps the greatest leader who ever graced this planet. And like any leader, we can learn a lot about who Jesus really was by looking at who really followed him. Who followed Jesus? Who are the people that responded to him? What were they like? I don't know what comes to your mind, but I want to suggest to you that the gospel writers in the New Testament give answers that really surprise us of who they were. If you brought a Bible this morning, electronic or paper, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And as a faith community, we are walking through piece by piece this marvelous masterpiece of literature the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is one of four Gospels that highlight the life of Jesus, who he is, what he did. And one of the themes of Matthew, as you look at it, is that Matthew wants us to see that Jesus of Nazareth is a kind of leader that is worthy to be followed. So here in chapter 9, Matthew presents Jesus, the unlikely king. This king theme is going to be all the way through the Gospel. But he's an unlikely king or leader who attracts unlikely people. He reaches out to them. And I want you to notice this morning that the text we're going to look at flows in a threefold way that sets the logical outline of our conversation this morning. And this is how Matthew arranges it. Jesus is the unlikely king who first attracts the unlikely, attracts the unlikely. And then right on the heels of that, he will say that Jesus is the unlikely king who loves the unlovely, so attracts the unlikely, loves the unlovely, and then he builds to a literary crescendo that says Jesus is the unlikely king who does the unexpected. So let's begin with 
Jesus attracting the unlikely. Now, no one knew this more than Matthew himself. Look with me at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, like a tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, in the first century, Matthew was one of those people who you would have never, ever, ever imagined that he would be interested, even remotely, in following Jesus. Now, I'd like you to picture someone in your mind, perhaps, that is like that in your world. A fellow colleague in business, a neighbor, someone in your pickup line, fellow student, who you would imagine because of their political views or cultural background or intellectual focus, that they would have very little interest in Jesus. In fact, maybe they have expressed hostility toward him and to faith. Who is that person that comes to your mind? Hold him right there or her right there. Now, as we enter back into the first century, that person is a person like Matthew. In fact, what is really stunning is that Matthew is the one who wrote this gospel. Not only is he an unlikely follower of Jesus, Matthew is the most unlikely one to write the first gospel in the New Testament. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. So I want us to keep that in mind as we walk through this brilliant text today and through the rest of this year. Matthew's personal experience that we're going to look at this morning, he writes it in briefly, shadows the entire gospel. It is the ultimate apologetic of who Jesus is and how he changes us, and it's through the lens of Matthew. It shadows the whole book, and we enter into this text where he begins to describe his own encounter. Now, let's go back into the first century. Would you join with me through your imagination? Put on your sandals, as we say, get across the sands of time, and enter back into the first century. Let's meet Matthew. Matthew, whose name is also Levi, was born in a very devout Jewish family. He learned the Torah. He went to the synagogue every week. He lived most likely in Capernaum, and he was deeply devoted to the scriptures as a young boy, his family. And they loved the scriptures. They loved the God of the scriptures, but they also detested the occupation of their land by Rome. In fact, in their home and conversations, as much as they loved Torah or the scriptures and God, they hated Rome. Roman soldiers were everywhere. Roman occupation and oppression was everywhere. And a young boy would learn very quickly to detest Rome. The Romans were Gentiles. They were Jews. But there was only one other kind of people they detested more. Detested. And that is fellow Jews who danced with the devil of Rome, who became tax collectors for the occupying oppressive power. They were greedy and padded their pockets with extraordinary wealth on the backs of the Jewish people. 
Now, perhaps out of his own ambition as a young man or his desire for great wealth. And clearly, the lucrative opportunity that Capernaum in its strategic location offered for tax collection in the northern part of Israel that connected the southern parts of Egypt to the northern parts of the world. And on the west, collected tariffs from goods traveling from Rome across the Mediterranean. It was an extraordinary place with incredible opportunity for great wealth. We don't know why, but Matthew decided, somewhat as a young man most likely, to dance with the devil of Rome. And we have to understand in Matthew's time, there were two classes of tax collectors. The first kind were really small potatoes. They exacted penny-sized taxes. These taxes for all people were more of a nuisance. They were annoying. You know, you might think of that as you pay sales tax for some shirt you buy. I mean, it doesn't break you doesn't ruin your day, but it's kind of annoying. And there were tax collectors that did that. But there was a whole other class of tax collectors that were given a Hebrew name, a derision. They were called the Mokesh. They were hated beyond hate because they were people who took great amounts of money of tariffs for any goods that came into Capernaum or any fish that were collected off the Sea of Galilee. The very name Mokesh meant injustice and hatred and oppression. They were viewed as idolatrous, traitorous criminals. Matthew was one of those. He rose up the ranks quickly, overseeing other tax collectors, and he was the most hated and vilified kind of tax collector imaginable. Everyone who lived in Capernaum And all those who traveled through Capernaum knew who Matthew was. No respectable Jewish person, let alone a rabbi, a teacher, a leader, spiritual leader of the Jewish people, would have anything to do with him whatsoever. Matthew was socially, morally radioactive ostracized and hated. But one day, a different kind of rabbi moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And what a breath of fresh air Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, was for his weary soul. For years, we must believe that Matthew had pursued with gusto what he believed the good life was, the truly good life. And hearing Rabbi Jesus speak of the good life, he heard it very differently for the first time. It wasn't a life of mere just gaining wealth or pleasure. Matthew fought back the gnawing loneliness and emptiness behind his sad eyes. Matthew's heart longed for more. And keeping his distance on the very edge of the crowds that gathered around Jesus in Capernaum to hear Rabbi Jesus speak, Matthew began to become interested. He heard something he never heard about. There was something very unusual about Rabbi Jesus. His appearance and demeanor was different. He wasn't harsh or self-righteous, but he was kind and gracious. Gracious with his deeds and words. And it was as if to a very Jewish Matthew that 
Jesus' face shined with the Shekinah glory of the holy holies as he spoke. It was almost as if Jesus glowed. His wise words and true words jolted Matthew. His callous conscience was pricked. He st- it stirred his longing heart. And back at his tax office, his business, Matthew's unsettled mind was wandering and wandering. He couldn't seem to concentrate on his work these days. He kept thinking of Rabbi Jesus' earth-shattering words. They, they echoed through his mind. He felt their wooing warmth, and he was drawn to this different kind of rabbi. Yet Matthew also felt the shameful weight of his own dark heart, his sordid past, his oppressive actions to others. After all, he knew and everyone knew around him that he had enthusiastically danced with the devil of Rome and everybody knew in the first century, once you start dancing with Rome, you continue to dance with Rome. Yet somehow, he wanted a different life and a quiet desperation as he tucked himself in at night must have washed over him. He longed for just a few minutes with Rabbi Jesus, but Matthew was convinced Jesus would never, ever, ever have anything to do with him. If rabbis got within stone's distance of a mokesh, a tax collector, they would turn and walk the other way. What must have started as an ordinary day at his place of work actually ended in an extraordinary way. It would be a day that would prove the most transforming day in Matthew's life. On that first century day, Rabbi Jesus came by Matthew's place of business. And Jesus came not to pay tax, but to give Matthew a visit. An invitation. In his classic 20th century work on Jesus' life, it's called The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah. It's a very thick book, but a brilliant book. Perhaps one of the best ever written on Jesus' life. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. He describes this moment better than anyone I've ever read, capturing what it was like for Matthew to look into Rabbi Jesus' tender eyes. He writes, Jesus fixed on him that look of love which searched the inmost deep of the soul. It needed not a moment's thought or consideration. He said not a word, for his soul was in speechless surprise of unexpected and love and grace. But he rose up, left the custom house, and followed him. Jesus, the unlikely king, attracts a very unlikely follower. Can you imagine the sinless one embodying a a scandalous mercy of such extraordinary proportions now offers a scandalous invitation to the most unlikely follower. Jesus looks at Matthew, a sinful tax collector. He looks him in the eye and he says, Matthew, Matthew, come follow me. And through the persuasive lens of his own personal story, the gospel writer, Matthew, here and continues on through the gospel, embeds this echoing antiphonal foundational truth, and it is this, that only sinners become Jesus' followers.
If you had known or met C.S. Lewis, that great Oxford professor in the 1920s, you'd have thought C.S. Lewis was a very unlikely candidate to follow Jesus. Brilliant intellect, of course, and avowed atheist. And when Lewis embraces Jesus, later on in his life, he describes himself as the most unlikely convert. In his book, Surprised by Joy, he writes, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God. And knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, notice, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. If we were to survey history, we would be stunned by the number of very unlikely people who become the most unlikely and influential converts of Jesus. Keep in mind, Matthew is chosen to write perhaps the most widely read book in the world. He is chosen to write this gospel, this inspired book, he was a pariah to his people. He was sinful to the core, unimaginably vile in his day. And Matthew's personal experience shadows his writing. It shadows every word. Matthew also shows here that King Jesus not only loves or, or attracts the unlikely, he loves the unlovely. Notice in verse 10, we read that after Matthew is invited by Jesus to become his disciple, what does Matthew do? He throws this massive party in his house. He's a man of great wealth. He is modest in describing this party. <laughs> but the other gospel writers like Luke just describe how awesome this party was. This was the party of the century. And Matthew is celebrating a milestone in his life. It's like a birthday, wedding, anniversary, all combined. And he is now a follower of Jesus, and he wants everyone to know it. And notice, while every other rabbi would not even talk or meet a tax collector, they'd walk the other way, Jesus comes to Matthew's house. Do you see that? And he parties with all of Jesus' followers. Now, let me ask you a question. What comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? I mean, so what's the image that sort of pops in your mind? Perhaps Jesus was brilliant. I hope that pops in your mind. Perhaps you think Jesus was a really good person and extraordinarily moral person, and that's true. Both of these are true and good. But I'm stunned how often the gospel writers present Jesus as the most, most joyful, happy person imaginable. Jesus was a very happy person. What comes in your mind about Jesus? We should be that he's joyful and celebrative and happy. And people of all kinds and stripes love being around him. And what a group are around him. Do you see this? Matthew gives a glimpse of the invitation list to this grand party. This is a hodgepodge of the rebellious nonconformist, the outcast, the morally suspect, and the marginalized. They're front and center on the guest list. This is the crew that often 
doesn't usually show up in churches on Sunday. Yet here is Jesus and his disciples parting with many religious types who wouldn't, we wouldn't often hang around with, would we? Or at least religious types often don't. And Matthew uses this opportunity to announce the good news and to introduce to unlikely and lovable people like you and like me to the one who will bring truly good news. The truly good life Jesus has come to make possible is now open to all. To all. It's a radical inclusiveness. But notice the party atmosphere of verse 10 is dampened in a heartbeat in verse 11. Jesus' religious critics show up. They look at Jesus parting with Matthew and his friends and they cry, foul. And notice in the text, I think Matthew's kind of messing with him a bit. Notice that self-righteous people are often very cowardly people. So in his cowardly way, Matthew says, they don't go to Jesus directly with their criticism. They go the back door to his disciples with their stinking criticism. These religious leaders are a different group than before in Matthew. They're the Pharisees. Pharisees were known as a group for their exclusivity. Those who didn't measure up to their self-righteous standard were excluded. See, for Pharisees, religious people, it was about purity and exclusion. But for Jesus, it was about healing and inclusion. Jesus, the one who perfectly embodied both grace and truth, welcomes the unwelcomed. Not only does Jesus welcome the unwelcome in the world, he seeks them out and pursues them. Wow. Now that's the kind of leader Matthew says is worthy to follow. That's the kind of leader I want to follow. How about you? Jesus addresses his critics as he does in verses 12 to 13 brilliantly. Let me read that. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I'm going to add, would you? It's kind of how it's written. I desire mercy and sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now I want you to notice in Jesus' response, it is loaded with a persuasive but gentle rebuke. First, he brings an analogy. Physical illness and spiritual illness, right? Just like when you're physically ill, you need a doctor. Spiritually, when you're ill, you need a doctor. And when you're sick, whether you admit it or not, you need a doctor. That's the point. And Jesus is saying to these self-righteous religious leaders who are desperately sick and can't see it, you are blind to your own sinful sickness, whether you admit it or not. You have a great need. I am the great physician. I can cure it. And he offers this instructive analogy. Then in verse 13, he goes back to the text of Old Testament. Not only is he given an analogy, he goes back to the text. It's an Old Testament book called Hosea, chapter 6, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Over and over again in the book of Matthew, Matthew presents Jesus as getting right to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Now he employs a phrase that is a rabbinical phrase called go Notice in the text, go and learn. This is a common rabbinical phrase of rebuke. Let me translate it. It is like a teacher gently with a smile saying, hmm, I think you're still clueless. So go back to the text and read it again. 
Got it? And Jesus is saying with, I think, a gentle smile, maybe the scales of blindness will fall off your self-righteous eyes and you will see your need for me like Matthew sees it because only sinners become followers of Jesus. I want you to also notice in the text the word came and call. Notice, both are tied together. Matthew, in writing his Gospels, have highlighted that Jesus has a past in eternity. Jesus came to this earth from the triune throne room of God in all his glory. He left that aside and came as a baby in a Bethlehem manger. Matthew goes out of his way to show Jesus both human and divine pedigree, doesn't he? So he is saying with Cain that Jesus left the throne room of God, became a human being, entered this earth on a rescue mission to save sinners. Sin is our most perilous problem and forgiveness of our sin is our greatest need. Jesus also pursues us. And what I love about this is he comes to where we are. Notice that he meets us right where we are. And don't you find it instructive? Jesus calls Matthew at his place of work. For Jesus cares about all dimensions of our lives and he wants us to follow him in all aspects of life. Yet Jesus gives us the freedom, doesn't he? He gives us a choice to embrace him, to listen to him, or to ignore him, to follow him or reject him. We have that choice. And Matthew wants us to wrestle with that choice. Will we respond like Matthew or will we respond like the religious critics? And see, Matthew's story reminds us of something very important to wrap your heart and mind around this morning. It's such extraordinarily good news, we miss it, that Jesus loves you. He loves each one of us so much that he will accept us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Wow. Jesus, the unlikely king, attracts the unlikely. And he loves the unlovely. But notice how this text builds that Jesus does the unexpected. You'll notice how this text builds that Jesus offers a brand new life, not a religious workover or makeover or, or leftover. There's a big distinction now between the religious leaders and Jesus, Jesus is saying, I am bringing something brand new. This is a radical difference in my message. And notice, John the Baptist's disciples are not sure what's going on here. They see, like the Pharisees, that something doesn't seem right. They're not getting the very radical nature of what Jesus is about. And Jesus responds with three interconnecting metaphors. Now, these metaphors, I believe, and this is not something I would say with, you know, High certainty, but it makes sense to me the best. Okay, so I think I, these three metaphors have a connectivity in theme. Okay? Um, and I think the connecting theme is around the celebration of wedding. The main thing to grasp is that these metaphors, all of them, have this idea that the old and new do not and cannot mix. The religious leaders of the time and Jesus' times, Jesus' time cannot mix. First of all, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom, doesn't he? And he's basically saying, in my kingdom, 
there's no fasting on this wedding day. I'm the bridegroom. Then he describes old and new clothes, which I think are tied to the wedding clothes. Because if you go to a wedding, you usually don't wear your old clothes. You don't wear your old patched up jeans. But it's not just the bridegroom and old and new clothes and wedding clothes. It's wine. And wine in the Bible is filled with all kinds of imagery of joy and celebration. But remember, Jesus' first miracle was what? Turning water into wine around a wedding. The point is this. You don't use leftover wine on this wedding day. It's all new and brilliant and good. You don't mix the old and the new. And Jesus says, I'm bringing the new, the unexpected new. I'm offering something much better. He is offering new wine and the wineskins of unimaginable joy to all who follow him. Because Jesus, King Jesus, offers forgiveness to the unforgiven, healing to the hurting, and he welcomes the unwelcome. Jesus is the unlikely king that invites sinners like you and me to follow him. So where are you this morning? That's where Matthew has us. Where are you? What is Jesus finding when he stops by your tax booth this morning? Your home, your place of work, your life, your relationships? What is he finding? Is he finding a heart of emptiness, of loneliness, of hurt? A heart of indifference or doubt? A heart of anxiety or fear, a heart of prideful self-sufficiency? A cluttered life filled with so much stuff and so much distraction, so so much busyness? See, describing the call of Jesus to follow him, writer Oz Guinness, I think, speaks beautifully to the malady of our particular time. He writes, the problem is that we have too much to live with and too little to live for. In a time of great material abundance, we have great spiritual poverty. Following Jesus gives us the good life. The life we were designed to live, the life we long to live, a life of purpose and wholeness. Jesus gives us much to live for. So how will you respond to Jesus' call to follow him? How will you? Will you respond to Jesus, the one who can bring true healing, true wholeness, true meaning and purpose in your life? Will you respond, I'll follow you? Let me ask three questions I'd love you to just write down or think about as we think about application of this particular message. First, do I realize my great need for Jesus? Matthew understood he was a great sinner in need of a great Savior. So did John Newton, who wrote that amazing him, amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet, how sweet, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. See, there are really only two types of people in the world when you whittle it all down. First, there are people who know they are broken and can't fix themselves, who are spiritually sick and need the great physician to heal them. But there are a second group of people who do know in their most honest, transparent moments that they are broken, and yet somehow they convince themselves they can fix themselves. People who know they are sick and believe they somehow can heal themselves. Which kind of a person are you this morning? See, Jesus reminds us that the good news he brings is the best news for the worst people 
and the worst news for the best people. What a brilliant paradox of the gospel. Jesus shed his innocent blood on a cruel Roman cross for you and me so that the unlikely, the unlovely, like me, might be forgiven, given new life, and given the greatest invitation imaginable to follow the most brilliant, beautiful being in the universe as his apprentice to the life we were created to live, now and forever. The Apostle Paul puts it so beautifully. Talk about an unlikely convert to Jesus. <laughs> Yet on a dusty road to Damascus, he was knocked off his horse to get his attention. But Paul says it so brilliantly. He says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of Jesus that leads us to follow him. How will you respond to the kindest person you'll ever know? the one who loves you more than you can ever imagine or ever fully fathom. Second question is, am I experiencing the deep love of Jesus? So often we ask the question, do you love Jesus? And that's an important question. But there is a more important question, I think. The question is, are you experiencing the deep love of Jesus? The writer First John says this, says we love him because he first loved us. See, a growing love for Jesus flows in and through his deeper love for us. On a card posted near our kitchen sink recently are these words that regularly remind me of the deep love of Jesus. There is no greater love than the love of Jesus. There's no love that's wiser, that's stronger, that lasts longer, that's more willing or thrilling. There's no love more beautiful and bountiful, more bold, more basic and unbiased. There's no love more caring, more sharing, more daring to risk all in danger for sinner and stranger. There's no love more gracious, more giving, more living, more sacred, more selfless, more soul-satisfying, more pure and undying. There's no love more verifiable, more valuable, more validating, more victorious, more glorious. There's no love more precious, more costly, more kingly, There's no love that's greater, that's more wonderful, more wild, more passionate, more powerful than the love of Jesus. Are you experiencing that love that Jesus has for you? Lastly, let me just raise the question, are we inviting others to follow this Jesus? The gospel writers remind us that those who follow Jesus joyfully invited others to follow Jesus. If there's no greater need than anyone that anyone has in Jesus, if there's no greater love anyone can experience in Jesus' love, if there's no greater joy anyone can ever know than Jesus' love, why wouldn't we invite other sinners like ourselves to come to him? It is the greatest joy and privilege to do that. So where are the Matthews God has placed in your life? At school, at work, in your neighborhood, in your family? You know, it's really true, but you can tell a ton about a leader by the kind of people who follow them. Jesus, the sinless and merciful one, is a friend of sinners. Only sinners become followers of Jesus. We're reminded of that when we gather around the Lord's communion table this morning. 
Jesus, with nail-scarred hands, graciously invites all sinners, like you and me, to embrace and follow him. The Lord's table expresses the inclusiveness of Christ and how he laid down his life for all, the unlikely and the unlovely. The Lord's table is also, friends, an open invitation to embrace Jesus Christ today as your personal Lord and Savior. If you have not yet repented of your sin and expressed your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you, let me urge you in love, in the quietness of your heart this morning, to hear Jesus' words to you, come follow me. And make that faith commitment to follow him as you come to the communion table, if you've never done that. Very first act of your decision to follow Jesus, I can't think of a better one than to come to his table of grace called the Holy Communion Table. Lord's table is a time also for those who have already embraced Jesus. But to offer up in sincerity and humility a renewed commitment to fully follow Jesus, to seek cleansing from our sin in our lives. If you'd like someone specifically this morning to pray for you, we'll have people up front here by the communion table stations as well as after the service to pray with you anything you want to pray about. So let's quiet our hearts now and take a few moments of silence as we prepare to respond to Jesus' wonderful invitation to come follow him and to come to his communion table. Let's pause for quiet prayer. Let's be still before him. Jesus, you are a friend of sinners. You, the sinless one, took our sin on your behalf. No greater love is there ever than a person lays down their life for a friend. And you have laid down your life for us. So we respond in humility, repentance, and faith, and joy, and gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us, confessing our sin to you for your faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come to your table.